You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Um, This morning, we are actually starting a new sermon series. We're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. Um, Today, we're going to do a little bit more of an introductory sermon for the whole book um, that will hopefully set us up to have a better understanding as we study the book throughout the summer as to what the author is trying to communicate. So this morning, we're going to start with um, Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Uh, If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open the Bible, um, to, to actually grab it, open the pages, look at God's Word with me. If you don't have a Bible near you, that's all right. Uh, The words will be on the screen. Hear the Word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all all of you in my every prayer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to um, a a new book in the Bible. What an exciting and joyous occasion, God, that we can open up your word afresh, that we can look at something new, God, that we can see in a new way um, from a different writer um, the glories of your gospel. We ask God that you would bless our time this morning and that you would bless our time as we meet and study your word throughout the summer. God, that as we look at this small but powerful letter from Paul, that it would shape us from the inside out. God, that this would um, not just uh, be information for us, but would really be an opportunity uh, for transformation, God. That as a church, this letter would change us as it changed the church in Philippi. Bless the preaching of your word this morning, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a rich tradeswoman, a slave girl, and a city jailer. It sounds like the start of a a bad joke where they all walk into a bar, but actually it's the start of a church. The Apostle Paul, he planted the church, this church in Philippi that he's writing to sometime between uh, 48 and 51 AD. We can see that in Acts 16. The city of Philippi uh, was a city located on a well-trafficked um, byway called the Ignatian Byway. 
It was a smaller city, but it served as a gateway from Rome to reach its eastern provinces. It had a rich heritage and a very distinctive culture. I think a way to think about it, it would maybe uh, be to think about the city of St. Louis, um, smack dab in, in the middle of the U.S., connecting east and west um, through a major uh, highway. Vital to understanding this letter that we're looking at right here um, today and, and moving forward in the summer is to remember that Paul, the author of the book, is actually writing this letter from prison, most likely from prison in Rome around 62 AD. And to, to give some life to this introduction today, this introductory sermon for this wonderful book, I, I want to show you this beautiful Rembrandt painting titled St. Paul in Prison. So as you take a, a look at this work of art, here's what one writer beautifully articulates about the place that we find Paul both physically and spiritually. So as I say these words, I just want you to look at this, this work of art um, and, and hear and, and look at the things that this writer is pointing out. Here's what he says. A painting that may present the most human St. Paul in art. Here then is an old Paul, no halos, no angels, no piercing holy glare. Just an old man surrounded by his books. One shoe kicked off to relieve what looks like uh, bunions on his foot and toes with corns. Paper at the ready, pen in hand, and that thinking look beyond where he is, into the nearness of how to write down what he feels. It's not the look of writer's block, but the struggle to express a reality too large for mere words. So today, as as we dive into uh, Philippians 1, 1 through 11, and really uh, take a a leap into this book of Philippians, I, I want you to have that imagery of Paul in your mind to stir your imagination and think about the things that he was thinking when he wrote these words as he sat in a prison cell. Now today we're going to do something a little bit different. Rather than systematically going verse by verse, we're actually um, going to look at at the first 11 verses and and look at how um, these introductory verses actually point out some of the major themes that we see throughout Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians. So the first thing that we see is this theme of essential unity. Verse one starts out with Paul's audience and and already we're seeing this grand call to unity. He writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So he's writing to everybody in the church, not just the laymen and women, but he's writing to the members and the church leaders. He includes the overseers, which could be translated as pastors or elders. Those those terms are all synonymous. He's writing to the pastors or elders and deacons. So this this letter is for everybody in the church in Philippi. And here's what he says his desires are for the church. Verse 9, he says, And I pray this, that your love would keep on growing. He, He longs for this church to grow in love or to put it differently, to be united. And why would Paul write a letter emphasizing unity so much if, unless there were divisions already taking place? There's uh, explicitly mentioned later in the book in in, uh, Philippians 4.2, there's a spat between two ladies in the church, Euodia and Syntyche. 
There also seems to be some divisions we see in Philippians 3 that arose in the church as some false teachers actually came into the church and started dividing the church um, uh, through um, false teaching, leading some one way and others another way. And mind you, this is on top of the fact that the church is a very diverse church in a very diverse city. Remember the three, fo- the three folks that we talked about earlier at the beginning? These are three people that we know were a part of the church since its inception, since day one when it was just a little church plant. You have Lydia. Again, you can see this in Acts 16. There's Lydia who was ethnically Asian and she was economically wealthy. There's a freed slave girl who was ethnically a native Greek and economically poor. And then there's the jailer who he and his household came to faith under Paul's ministry in Philippi. He was ethnically Roman and likely economically middle class. There were a lot of barriers for this ragtag group of churchmen and women to overcome. But that's why the call to unity was so important to Paul. Here's what he writes later in Philippians 1, 27 through 28. He says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. It's a sign of your salvation. And this is from God. Now, now don't miss this. Paul talks a lot about sanctification in the book of Philippians. This idea that we're continuing to become more and more like Christ every day. That's what sanctification means. Now for us, we often think about us becoming more holy simply in terms of, of behavioral things. Like we're, we're stopping lying. We're, we're not cursing anymore. Or maybe on the flip side, we're, we're praying more, reading our Bible more. Those are marks of sanctification, sure, but Paul says here that the mark, the mark of their sanctification is their unity. Do you hear that? Your unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ is a sign of your salvation, of your sanctification. Now, of course, there's nuance to this, right? Paul clearly points out that Christian unity is different than just unity in general. It's not going through Google's diversity class. We are united around a purpose. Here's what one commentator writes in his commentary on Philippians. He says, Christian unity is absolutely crucial to being a Christian. You hear that? It's a sign of your salvation. But that unity is only Christian if it is founded on the apostolic gospel of Christ and him crucified. This call to unity is exactly what Jesus is telling us when he talks about the importance of love in the gospel of John. He says, by this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, if you are united. Church, our unity, our togetherness, our oneness is essential. And our unity is actually a sign of our salvation. Now, all the way back in January, I I preached a sermon on unity. And I warned all of us that in light of a looming election season, okay, again, this is in January, in light of a looming election season, that we needed to be careful about being divided here in this church. 
Little did I know, like most of us, that months later we would be facing a global pandemic that I would argue has actually only more deeply divided folks in our culture and even in our church. So I'll, I'll say these things again. The, the way you talk to each other matters. The way you interact online with people, but more specifically, brothers and sisters in Christ, matters. The way you even think about other brothers and sisters in Christ matters. You can be divided from somebody without ever uttering a word. All right, so let's go there. Right now, there's a lot of things that are dividing us, right? Or that could divide us. Do we wear a mask or do we not wear a mask? Hey, we're not gathering soon enough. On the other side, hey, we're getting together too quick. Hey, this is overblown. We're not taking this seriously enough. You're not living in faith. Yeah, well, you're not loving your neighbor. And on and on it goes. Here's what Paul says to all those things. And hear this, church. He says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. It's Philippians 2, 1 through 2. The call from Paul to us today, right now, amidst all the divisions that exist around us, the call from Paul to us is to be united. This unity is essential. The next major theme that we see in Philippians, and we see even here in these introductory verses, is lowly humility. At the beginning of his letter, um, Paul actually models humility for us. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants, or some translation reads slaves, of Christ Jesus. Now, this is the only time that, that Paul only uses that title of servant of Christ Jesus. Elsewhere, yeah, he uses that title, but he always ties his apostolic title with it. He may say servant of Christ Jesus and apostle, but here, to model humility, which is the main point of his letter, he only uses that term servant. Now, a few weeks ago, Pastor James defined humility as laying down your privileges for the benefit of another. Another way of saying this is laying down yourself so that someone else can be uplifted. And what's beautiful is, is that Paul, in this greeting, which often we just skip right over, <laughs> Paul is modeling for us what humility looks like. He says, hey, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. I'm lowly. I'm nothing. But at the same time, he honors leaders. And like no other time, he mentions the titles of the overseers and deacons in the Philippian church. He's lowering himself and pushing others up. Throughout the book, Paul continues to emphasize the need for humility in the church. Most well-known, I would argue, is Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. This call to humility can sometimes be voluntary, right? It's choosing to consider others more important than yourselves. But sometimes this lowly humility is something that is actually thrust upon us. 
It comes on us in the form of suffering. It's when our circumstances, not our choices, make us lowly. Paul, Paul, in this letter, he's making his friends aware of, of his circumstances. He's letting them know that he's in prison. And in that, we can actually see um, that there's two ways to respond to suffering. One way is we can respond in pride. The other is in humility, which I would argue Paul does. When we respond to suffering and pride, we, we say, look at these circumstances that you've put me in, God. I deserve better than this. And here are all the reasons why. But like, like Paul, when we respond in humility to suffering, we say, God, even this, even me being in prison, having to write a letter from prison, instead of being in person with my brothers and sisters, with my dearly beloved church, even this is better than I deserve, God. Which is exactly what Paul did. He writes in, in uh, Philippians 1, 12 through 13, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Paul was put into a place of suffering yet responds in humility. He says that surely God is using even this imprisonment. So I'll make the best of it. Now there's an opportunity for all of us in this letter to pursue lowly humility. All of us, in a sense, are in circumstances that we didn't anticipate and certainly didn't desire. So we all, to a degree, are suffering. But, but some are suffering in greater ways than others. Maybe you've lost the chance to celebrate a milestone, like a graduation, or a wedding, or the birth of a child with family. Maybe you've lost your job, the cutbacks, hit right away. Maybe you've lost a loved one recently and being isolated, man, has only made it that much harder and reminded you that much more of how you miss that person. We, we don't want to rush past those things, but our, our invitation in these situations is to embrace our lowliness and turn to Christ. And then for all of us, we always, always, always need to remember that we can and should voluntarily lay down our wants and our desires and our preferences to love and serve those around us. That's what love is. And that's what Christ did for us. But more on that when we get to Philippians 2. The third theme that we see in the book of Philippians is grace's complexity or the complexity of grace. One complex reality that we see throughout the book is regarding grace and how it relates to salvation. Most of us, we think of, of salvation as a completed reality, which is true, but partially true. And Paul sheds more light on how we think of salvation. He, he says, yes, you are saved, but you're also being saved. This latter process of, of being saved is what we call sanctification that we talked about earlier. It's becoming more and more holy, more and more like Christ whom we serve. This is an important distinction and one that we'll see throughout the letter. So you are saved, full stop. In the opening salutation, Paul refers to the Philippians as saints, as holy ones. Now, oftentimes we, uh, we don't really understand this word, right? We 
We hear the word saints and we think, think of it more in the terms of, of the Catholic sense where somebody does a lot of really good stuff. They do great miracles or they just serve everyone in a way that you've never seen before and um, they become saints. They're, they're made into saints. But the reality is that anybody who is saved, anybody who is a, a citizen of Christ's kingdom is a saint. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. You are a holy one. But most of us don't feel like that, do we? We feel more sinner than saint oftentimes. Here's what one renowned German scholar, Karl Barth, writes about this idea, this word, saint and holy ones. He says, the designation of the Philippians as the holy ones in Christ Jesus describes the condition in which they find themselves on the ground of a specific mind and attitude towards them on God's part, not vice versa. Quote, unquote, holy people are unholy people. Saints are sinners, is what he's saying, who nevertheless, as such, have been singled out, claimed, requisitioned by God for his control, for his use, for himself, who is holy. Their holiness is and remains in Christ Jesus. I love that. Make that personal. Your holiness is and remains in Christ Jesus. You are declared holy by the work of Christ. You are saved if you're in Christ. But also, here's the nuance. You are being saved. It's happened, but it's happening. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. In our text today, he says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you, do you catch that? He says, even though you're saved, you are still being saved. The work is still going on. But it's amazing that Paul says that we can be sure that Christ will do the work because Christ is trustworthy. Why is he trustworthy? Because he is God and very God. And what seemingly complicates this whole thing even more is that salvation is something that's given to us, but it's also something that we work at. He says in Philippians 2, 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out, he says. There is responsibility for us to grow in holiness, but God is still the one that gives us the grace to even do the work. Paul goes on, he says, work out your, holiness, or your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his purpose. What's lovely about Paul's writing is that he's not worried about trying to marry these apparent paradoxes that exist. For Paul, it's a both and reality. You are saved, but you are being saved. Grace's complexity, it shows us that we are saved and being saved both at the same time. And that's a reality. It's not something we have, to, we have to manage. It's something that we can live into. One of the last major themes that we see is shining missionality. One of the key things that we'll see throughout the book of Philippians is both the call, the call to, and the example from the Philippian church as to what it looks like to live on mission, to actually take the good news to those near and far. 
you look in our text today, Paul calls them partners in the gospel. Philippians 1, 3, it says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you because of your partnership. You're working together with me in the gospel from the very first day until now. This church, this Philippian church was extremely generous. You can see their generosity all throughout the pages of the New Testament. They supported Paul's work around the world and supported local churches everywhere when there was need. And that's an important practice for us to, to, um, to follow suit in, for us to practice as a church. We need to remember that, that part of living on mission is supporting other works. As we grow as a church, we want to fervently do our best to support church planting and mission work, both here in our city and around the world. We can do this corporately, but we can also do this as individuals. So we can be missional by by being generous and supporting other works, but we are also called to be missional ourselves, to live on mission as individuals and as a local body. We're not just spectators at a sporting event, paying money to get in and to watch all the holy people do cool stuff. But we're actually players in the game. Here's what Paul calls the church to. He says in Philippians 2, 14 through 16, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among who you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. I love that. You are supposed to shine like stars in the world. Sounds a little bit more like a Katy Perry song than a Pauline epistle, but we're going to embrace it. Paul says that when we embrace our identity, when we live as children of God and live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we will shine like bright bright stars in a dark sky. This is the call to live on mission in our everyday lives. Now, I think no verse summarizes Paul's teaching in Philippians better than uh, Philippians 1.27. We looked at this earlier, but it's worth looking at again because we see all the themes come to bear. He writes, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. He says, you, you are citizens of a different world, my dear church. You've been saved, but live like you're saved. He says, live with lowly humility, submitted to and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, live in unity, in one spirit, one accord, live together. Then he says, live with a a shining missionality. He says, contend together for others to experience faith in the gospel. As we continue to study Philippians this summer, I think the Apostle Paul and, and God, our Father, has much for us to learn. He has many invitations for us as a church to grow. Let's pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville. 
and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.